If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to Romans chapter 12. We resume our study there this morning, this very iconic whole chapter, really. Uh, when you think of the book of Romans, I know they're probably, depending on whom, who you ask, uh, there might be different opinions as to what often comes to mind, but for many people, Romans 12 would, would often come to mind just simply because of the very much the thesis statement that kind of compel or that kind of governs uh, Romans 12 to 16 is, I appeal, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. And then he goes on to talk about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So those very much function, that very much functions as, you know, if we think about each section maybe has its own little thesis statement, that very much functions as a governing statement, what the whole of Romans 12 to 16 is about, is about this idea that our lives have been so completely changed and transformed that by the very renewing of our minds, it means we're going to live and, and be differently, or live and be different and act differently, and all the ripple effect of what redemption means. Uh, so often, we can just think of redemption purely in terms of rescue, and it certainly is that. We miss it if we don't recognize that. But that rescue very much has a purpose right? That rescue is we're rescued for something. We're not just rescued from something that we are. We are rescued for something positive, and Romans 12 really gets at that. In fact, this passage before us this morning are getting at the ESV labels this section very rightly, marks of the true Christian. What does it mean for us to actively live out our faith? And that's what this whole section this morning is driving at. Uh, the idea, you'll hear me mention this again and again this morning, the notion of what virtue is. What is virtue? And we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But without further delay, let's turn our attention now to this passage, this paragraph. We're, this morning we're going to be looking over Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. So, beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. 
So as the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Please now pray with me. Father, this time is yours, this Word is yours, we are yours. Let us lay aside everything that would entangle us in mind and spirit for the purpose of seeking truth and hoping that that truth will change who we are. Father, transform us, we pray in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. It is football season. It is on TV. It is in the stadiums. People are, are hyped, and it's fun. It's a fun, it's a fun time. The fall is one of my favorite times of year just because of the buzz. When you, when you look at sporting events, especially if you watch them on TV, you're very, it becomes very clear very quickly that people are very invested in these events, and, and, and I am too, right? So I'm not pointing my finger at anybody. I, I can yell at a TV with the best of them. I'm, I'm glad you don't come to my house on Saturdays. You might have a different opinion of me. Sporting events, they play on the emotions of everybody who's invested in them. Now, those of us who are merely spectators, who just watch, imagine how it must be to actually be a competitor on the field. It's easy for us to use the phrase armchair quarterback. It's easy to us to make these snap decisions about what we're watching. But imagine how invested the people who are actually playing the game, the coaches who are coaching the game, actually are. They're very invested. And if we're honest, I'll be honest, I'll raise my hand, when we see a competitor crying after a sporting event, we kind of laugh at it. It's kind of funny. I can't tell you how many times I sent Tebow crying to people over the years. I'm an Alabama fan, by the way. <laughs> I love Tim Tebow, just so you know. We laugh. We laugh because we think it's funny, but is it really so surprising when somebody who is that heavily invested in a game cries? It, I'm not asking if you think it's worth crying about. That's beside the point. I'm asking, is it so surprising when somebody who's invested in a competition cries at a loss? It's not really. When you think about it, whether you think it's a worthy investment or not, again, set that aside. Just imagine that someone does think it's a worthy investment. Someone does work very hard. Someone does take practice seriously. And when they come up on the losing end of the competition, they shed tears. It shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us. In fact, it really shouldn't even be all that funny because what are the things that we're invested in when they don't work out the way we want them to? We might shed a tear over it. Now, it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, but my things are way more important than a game, and maybe they are. But at least we can sympathize that people who are invested, they weep. Now, what is very surprising, right, what is very surprising it's not that someone might weep over a loss. Is that when we see two competitors on the field where the aggression is happening or the competition is happening, when one competitor stops to help another competitor, someone that they are working against. You've seen the videos, I'm sure, of one, one of the ones that sticks out in my mind is this guy was running a marathon, and he was almost there. And he fell in exhaustion across the line that he had mistaken for the finish line. And the other guy was running up behind him thinking, oh, and he stops. And he picks the guy up. 
he throws his arm over his shoulder, and he runs, like they limp along, and he finally, he pushes him across the finish line, and the guy wins the race. And the reporter is like, what are you doing? You had an opportunity to win. And he said, yeah, but this guy ran hard, and he beat me the whole race. I thought it was right that he finished first. Well, that's what should surprise us. You know why? Because in those moments, something transcends the competition. Something transcends the, the field of, of battle, as it were, to use a war term, and somebody recognizes this is another human being. I'm not just trying to win a game at this point. I have an opportunity to show virtue. Those are, those are great moments. If you really, really want to... Now, make sure nobody's around because you will cry. There's a whole montage of videos out there of people coming onto the field of competition to help somebody. One of the best ones, but never mind, that's not the point. I won't go there. I won't get off track. So when we see these types of acts of sportsmanship, they remind us that this moment is so much bigger than a win-loss. This moment is so much bigger than a competition. This moment they can lay the stated goal of winning aside because they see another human being and they would rather help that human being. In those moments, virtue becomes the goal, not winning. Now, virtue. We hear this word. We hear it a lot, in fact. And in fact, if you think about virtue as it is traditionally defined, it's not a very popular thought in culture. I would say modern culture, but I don't think it's ever been a popular idea in culture insofar as there are sinners and there are people who have to have, and, and, and as sinners, having our sin challenged. So let's just think about this. Virtue is not a popular idea, but now when we hear it, it's a very fluid idea. It's a lot like love. So virtue becomes elastic. In fact, virtue becomes what me and my tribe and those who share my think, thinking how, what we do, and how we stand with and for each other. So in that sense, virtue has lost a lot of meaning. Whatever aligns up with my personal, political, or spiritual views now has become virtuous. And so you don't have to look very hard on, on, on newscastings or read articles about people who are doing very unvirtuous things, but their tribe is going to protect them because we, we can't have anyone thinking that were less than. Beloved, that's not virtue. What as a Christian, when we see virtue or when we fail to see virtue, we have to point out what is virtuous against what is not virtuous. So we click, we're quick to defend a lack of virtue, people are, as long as people are on our team. But virtue is not malleable, it's not elastic, and for Christians, virtue is not negotiable. Our call to virtue far outweighs any other commitment we have in this world. What does it mean to be virtuous? We're going to spend the next several minutes talking about that. But here's what I will say on the front end of this, that godly, or good theology rather, must lead to godly virtue. We can't love Christ and His people if we are lacking in virtue. Again, Brad, what is virtue? We just read about what virtue is, and, 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 I, and I will explain it. But here's what I want to say on the, here's what I say just kind of as a foundational comment. Virtue is driven by love. 
Virtue is absolutely driven by love. It's driven by love for Jesus and by love for people made in his image. And so when there is a fundamental lack of virtue, there is a denial of love at some level. So by not holding a standard of virtue, we are not loving people well. By not holding a standard of virtue, we are not loving God well. Beloved, this is the thing that not only do we not want to just wink past a lack of virtue in our own lives, we don't want to do it in the people that are around us and that we love. I'm not saying that our lives are meant to be one confrontation after another, but I am saying sometimes some things are more important in our lives than agreement or than somebody liking us or than acceptance, and it's called virtue of being willing to point out what is a lack of virtue. And here's, here's how it often goes. We might point out something that is lacking virtue in a person, and then someone responds, well, but did you see this other person? You know what that is? That is classic deflection. That's classic blame shifting. In fact, it's not new to humanity. Did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to eat of? Well, that woman you gave me. It's it's deflection. There it is. It starts there. And the woman, well, did you eat of the fruit? Well, the serpent tricked me. We have to call things, as, as Christians, believers, what they are in ourselves, and in the world around us. And yes, you know what you're going to risk? You know what what you're risking at that point? Being called judgmental, being called a prude, being called all manner of things. But here's what we're going to find out today. Virtue is not what we determine, which is virtuous in a moment. Virtue is virtue, and it stands, just like love is love, and it stands. And we're going to talk about that phrase in a moment here in just a minute. Virtuous people, do they make mistakes? You bet they do. All the time. But what is, what is it that marks a virtuous person? There's a clear return to virtue that marks the Christian. So in a world seeking to deny Christ, what should we also expect? We should expect a denial of Christian virtue. Because we've denied the head, we're going to deny the fruit that that head gives. So with those thoughts in mind, there's an idea I want for us to see, and it's this, that service and grace are the marks of Christian virtue, that service and grace are the marks of Christian virtue. When you think of true service and you think of grace, those are two things that will not generally come natural to us. Those are things that have to be worked in us. I'm not saying there are not people among us who are willing to serve, but the type of service, selfless service, life-giving service that the Bible calls us to have is not something that we are just going to naturally do. It is something that has to be worked in us from a source outside us. In other words, it's not going to be natural to our flesh. It is going to be very much Spirit-inspired, and grace is the same way, because grace means that we choose love in a moment over you give me what you owe me. It's easy to to live, you give me what you owe me. Much harder to choose love in a moment that says, I have Christ, and you have Christ, and that is enough. All Christian virtue is a fruit of love from God. It starts in the vertical relationship with the Lord, and it moves to the horizontal reality of how that becomes worked out. In other words, if I'm really going to love you well, I need to have this vertical relationship with the Lord. And if I have this vertical relationship with the Lord, I 
have it. It's, it's, it's incumbent upon me to love you well. These things are very much interconnected. And so when Paul here starts this paragraph and he says, let love be genuine, that sentence kind of stands alone. What we're understanding here is that genuine love can only flow from God. We know what love is, First John would tell us, because God has loved us. John sets our understanding of love based on our experience of God's love. So we need to understand here that Paul, for let love be genuine, if we're going to begin there, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. If we're going to understand how is love authentic, we need to understand that it's rooted in who God is and our connection to Him. That's how we genuinely understand love. But he says this, let love be genuine. You can kind of read that as an express command. Let love be genuine. What does that mean? Well, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. This sentence functions as another little thesis sentence in the book of Romans. It kind of governs this whole paragraph all the way through verse 21. What does it mean to let love be genuine? Well, it means to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Okay, Paul, what does it mean to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good? And he begins to break that down. You love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Be zealous, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, and so forth and so on. He begins to tell us what does it look like to let love be genuine if we're going to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. There's going to be this love-hate relationship. There's going to be some things that we love and some things that we hate. Abhor is a very graphic word. It doesn't mean mildly dislike. It doesn't mean not prefer. It means to hate. So when we start thinking about what is it that we hate hate what is evil. Well, what is evil? Well, those are questions that we're going to come to. Evil is anything that sets itself against God. So that's a sobering definition. We start thinking about evil as anything that sets itself against God. There are a lot of things in our world that look harmless, mild, and good that God would call evil because they set themselves up against God. I dare say the serpent in the garden didn't look very evil when he was talking to Eve. Well, God knows that you'll be wise. God knows this, this fruit is really good. It's tasty. You'll like it. God knows that in the day that you eat it, you'll be like him. Now, I want you to let that wash over to you. Should we, should we be wise? We certainly should. Should we be like God? Absolutely. We're called to be imitators of God. Can we enjoy the good gifts that God gives? Yes. What made the act evil? God said, don't do it. God said, don't do it. Beloved, it, it really is that simple. I'm not trying to oversimplify a complex idea here. There's a lot of things in our world that look harmless that aren't, that look good that aren't, that look safe that aren't. Our safety resides in what do the commands of Christ say? And anything that would go against that would be evil. James and other biblical writers would tell us, do not love the world or the things of the world. So we can't love what the world loves, at least not in the same way. There are so many things in, in, in culture and society, they play on our humanity. Uh, Satan knows our weaknesses. 
and they try to engage us or draw us in to love things that have a seeming appearance of innocence or goodness. But beloved, this is why we have to know the Word, and we have to be people of the Word to let the Word shine the light on what is truly good and what is truly evil. And we're going to make mistakes, every single one of us. We're going to. But what defines us as clinging to what is good is when the light is shined, where do we go? What do we turn to? Turn to what is good. What is the good that we cling to? What is truly Godward? That the true good is not worldly good. Good is not subject to our whims. Good is not what's good in this moment. Good is what is rooted in God. I mean, the word good is an old English word that implies godly. So when we start thinking about what is good, that is why Jesus said to the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? He's asking a question. Are you associating me with that object, that principle, that's, which is truly good, which is God? So we're clinging to what is good. We're clinging to the things, the truth of God, the Spirit of God, the Son of God, God the Father. We're clinging to these things that give us grace and give, keep us rooted in the truth. Paul builds on this. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Or just literally, it kind of reads, brotherly love with affection, or a brotherly love affectionately. Why? He's just told us, love, let love be genuine. There's an overarching principle there. Why would he then repeat himself and say, love one another with brotherly affection? Do you know why? I'll tell you why. Because for humans, it's easy for us to let things stay in the philosophical realm. I love all people. I love all the brothers and sisters in the church. I don't like most of them, but I love them. Unfortunately, this verse tells us if love is going to be genuine, there does actually have to be an affectionate brotherly love. In other words, love with hands, love with feet, love with legs, love that is visibly discernible, that we are doing things that actually express and show love, and that's going to be serving, that's going to be living with, that's going to be all manner of walking with and growing with and, and, and confrontation and being confronted and laughing and weeping and eating and worshiping and all sorts of things that are sometimes deeply awkward. And yet, if love is going to be genuine... For introverts and extroverts alike, we have got to be living life together. That is the only place where brotherly affection comes, so that love has to be practiced. First John says it so clearly in First John chapter 4, verse 20. This is the Brad translation. If you can't love your brother who you can see, you can't love God whom you can't see. In other words, when you start seeing people made in the image of God, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved, that becomes how do we let love be genuine? Well, how well are we loving the people in front of us? This is deeply convicting. I'm sure it's convicting for you, it's convicting for me, because we can start counting the ways in which we don't do that, and yet 
part of this idea of transformation means we're looking for ways to love. And sometimes that means uber-involvement, and sometimes it means backing off. Sometimes it's deep, just real practical service, and sometimes it is counseling, it's discipleship, it's training, it's instruction. And sometimes it's not saying a word and just being there. It looks differently in different contexts. But we need to understand that brotherly love is essential because First John would make us realize that if we don't have that, redemptive love is absent. Caveat, we're not going to do it perfectly. So if you're thinking of all the ways you failed, I don't want you to walk away from here and say, well, the pastor said I'm not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that as a basic standard of Christianity 101, we need to be looking for ways to love people. And it's going to look different depending on the context. You know, this, I want to say something here. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to just, just, if you're keeping track, write this as an application. In our very politicized culture, what we hear often, one of the phrases on those little signs that are in people's yard is, love is love. No, not the way the world talks about it. Love is not love because love has a one defined source, and that's in Christ and Yahweh and the Holy Spirit, in the Godhead. And only when that becomes the foundation for how we are loving does love become love. That is what love is. And so to live in a culture that would say any romantic involvement you choose is love, any attraction that you may harness is love. It creates a Pandora's box for things that are so awful and evil that we dare not speak of them in mixed company this morning. Beloved of God, love is love if we're talking about love being rooted in Christ. If we're not talking about that, then love is not love. It's become something different. And so this brotherly affection, this genuine love, these things are coming from a space of are we rooted and founded in Christ, because that is the foundation of what is love. That is true from spousal relationships to uh, general family relationships to friendships to any relationship we have. It's governed by this idea. But he builds on this. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. When we talk about this type of zeal, there needs to be a zealousness for service to God. But what does he mean? So when he talks about have zeal, not be slothful in zeal, what does he mean by that? What, what is he, he explains it right here. He tells us exactly what he means. What does it mean to not be slothful in zeal, to not be lazy in zeal? In other words, more positively, what does it mean to be zealous? Well, he tells us firstly to rejoice in hope. We have this hope in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is it a source of joy to us? Are we living our lives rejoicing in the hope who is Christ? We just sang some songs about it that, that Gardner and the worship team led us through. 
we sing and, and we proclaim these rich truths that we are loved by God. And does that type of hope give us real rejoicing? Are we celebrating Christian hope in the gospel that God has saved us from sin and death? Are we celebrating, rejoicing in the real help we have in Christ? Oh, but there's a balance here. It can be easier to rejoice, much harder to be patient in affliction. If you're like me, you don't like affliction. I don't love affliction. In fact, I would love a world in which affliction was not a part of it, and yet God does use it. Why? Because in the midst of affliction, you know what question we're constantly having to answer? Can I trust in the goodness of God in this moment? Can I trust that God is good still and leading me to a, to a better end? I have walked through seasons of affliction myself, and I have walked with a number of you through your own seasons of affliction, and the question is always the same, whether you're asking it of you or I'm asking it of me or we're asking it together. Can we trust that God is good and He does good, according to what the psalm says, to His people, so that we're patient there, praying fervently. That's what Paul literally says here. He, it says, the ESV says, constant prayer literally it says praying fervently or fervent prayer. What does it mean to pray fervently? It means that we pray believing that God is able. It means that in those, again, I mentioned long watches of the night where we are praying and we don't feel like God is answering, that we remain constant in the goodness of God and we ask and we keep asking, we seek and we keep seeking, and we trust in the good answer that the Lord gives despite whether or not it's the one we wanted. Praying fervently for the lost, praying fervently for our own sanctification, praying fervently for God's provision, praying for revival. What does it look like to be zealous in service? It looks like contributing to the needs of the saints. We take up an offering every Sunday. We don't just do it because it's a good thing to do. We don't just do it because, hey, the church needs money. Is it a good thing to do? Yeah. Does the church need money? Absolutely. We have bills. We have ministries. And so when we talk about what does it mean to be zealous in our service, it means that we are generously giving of our time, of our resources, and ways in which the church can then take those and help people grow and help ministries um, go on and, and do all the things that require resources in our midst that sometimes help put food on somebody's table, or sometimes they help pay people's rent, or sometimes they go to this, that, and the other. These contributions, it's not just that's a nice gesture, it's actually in keeping with what it means to be zealous in our service to the Lord. So that then giving then doesn't become optional for the believer. We just have to determine how much are we willing to give to the Lord. Hospitable? Are we opening our lives and homes to other people? Are we inviting people in? Part of what it means to be zealous in our service, this virtue that we possess, is are we inviting people in? It's easy not to do that. But, beloved, are we opening up our, our hearts and homes to other believers for their growth and maturity? Then Paul begins on a slightly different trajectory. So if the virtue of this is positive, 
What are some things that are hard to demonstrate Christian virtue? Well, it starts with here. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Now, it's typical in psychology people have a fight or flight response to adversity. I'm a fighter. Uh, even if I think I'm going to get beat, I would just rather stand and fight than run. And that doesn't always serve well. Some people are fleers. They would rather just run away from it and, and never address it again. I, I would almost rather take someone's best shot, both literally or metaphorically, maybe more metaphorically than literally. I don't really want to get punched. So that I can dish it back to them because I'm a fighter. But you know what Christian virtue says? People will come against you to hurt you, to persecute you. And even those people need our virtue and our love. Bless, imperative command. In other words, don't just complain. Don't just, hey, Christians, avoid complaining about your persecution, Paul is telling the church. Actively bless those who are persecuting you. How can you pray for them? How can you love them well? How can you live in a way that does not curse them? So not only don't complain, but don't curse them either. I'll be honest with you. If I'm just, if I'm just gut level honest with you this morning, that sounds almost impossible to me. And it is in my flesh. That only happens when the Spirit is working in the minds and hearts of believers to accomplish His goal, which is to imitate Christ who was silent before those who persecuted him, who did not return cursing for persecution. In other words, we don't retaliate, we pray. We don't retaliate, we show kindness. Quickly, Paul addresses verses 15 and 16 as he's setting the stage for how we deal with enemies Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Uh, Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Verses 15 and 16, kind of this notion of be with people where they are. Enjoy your pain. Be present. Have empathy. Show love. Be gracious. Be kind. Be considerate. If someone's weeping, we don't have to make it better. We don't have to try to solve it. Sometimes it's best just to weep. That sometimes your most godly response to someone's weeping is just to weep without any notion of trying to fix it. Because we don't always need it fixed by our friends. We just need somebody who will weep with us. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. You know why Paul would bother to say this? Because it can be easy to become jealous of other people's successes. Instead of, as a Christian virtue, we would say, no, no, no. The Lord has blessed you. You're doing well. I want to rejoice with you. This is great. This is awesome. Let's rejoice together. We'll weep together. We'll rejoice together. And I love the way he writes this, this kind of rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who who weep, literally kind of harmonizing with one another. Literally how it reads, harmonizing with one another, seeking unity. What is the enemy of unity? Arrogance. Arrogance. Because when I'm seeking to live with and for other people, uh, I, I'm going to be, choose a pathway of humility. When I'm pride-filled and arrogant, I'm going to do things that are good for me regardless of how it might affect you. 
So when he talks about not being wise in your own eyes, he's talking about pride and this idea that I'm better than you or I somehow deserve more than you. The natural enemy to empathy and unity is pride. If I'm arrogant, I don't feel your pain. If I'm arrogant, I'm not worried about us being unified. If I'm humble, I do want to feel your pain. If I'm humble, I am looking for ways in which we can come together rather than my name can be top dog. Harmonizing with one another. He comes back around to this idea. Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Again, what's he saying? Stay away from retaliation. Seek to imitate God. And he doesn't just say, do this with people who are like-minded, people who share your views, people who are a part of your tribe. He says, do what is honorable in the sight of all, showing a love and humility to those with whom you agree and those with whom you don't. If possible, so far as depends on you, be or live peaceably with all. Conditional call or conditional sentence here. You know why? It won't always be possible to be at peace with people. But beloved is our posture to be peaceable people, to try to be at peace with people, to not be people of conflict. I'll tell you, if you want to be offended, it's easy to be offended. Very easy to be offended if you really want to be offended. If you want to look for offense, you'll find it. If you want to find a problem, you'll find it. And you will find those things in abundance and with ease. But Christ would say there's a more excellent way for us if we would seek to be at peace with people, i.e. not harnessing in the conflict, not looking for conflict, not looking for offense. There's plenty of things that will actually offend us if we walk with the Lord. So the idea that we could perhaps lay our knives down just a little bit and not choose offense and not choose conflict becomes a mark of Christian virtue. This idea that I'm at peace with Christ, and so I can be at peace in the world, not without conflict, not without hardship, and if possible, Paul is recognizing it won't always be possible. There are going to be real conflicts, and in those moments, we trust in the Lord. He's bringing this idea to its closing. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then again, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So when we start looking at why, why can we choose peace and, and humility and, and all the other things that go along with Christian love, because God's wrath takes away the need for vengeance. Our most natural response to being hurt is to avenge. It's the most natural response. It's the most fleshly human response we have is to take vengeance. You hurt me, and now I'm going to hurt you. And even if you, if you read books or you watch shows, the person who's out for vengeance, I mean, the Count of Monte Cristo, how do you not cheer for that guy? You want him to get out of prison. 
You want him to go find those jokers, and you want him to humiliate them and ruin their lives because, by goodness, they deserve it because of what they did to him. It's the most natural response we have so that when Paul tells us, hey, don't, don't take vengeance, don't retaliate, you want to talk about a mark of Christ-likeness? Trust in the Lord's wrath. And here's what I'll say about that. God's wrath is infinitely more awful than any revenge we could ever devise. To talk about being under the wrath of God is worse than anything you or I could ever come up with for someone who stands outside of the forgiving love of God. And so what does God's vengeance do for us? It gives us the ability to have a posture of forgiveness. I want to be clear, forgiveness, this, this is, uh, some, we'll talk about this on another time, but God's wrath gives us the freedom to have a posture of forgiveness, to remain free from resentment. Paul goes one step further. In other words, don't just not get vengeance. Actually show your enemy real kindness. Don't get hung up on the picture here of food and drink. Kindness, that's, that's what Paul is getting at. Show, show your enemies a real kindness and it heaps burning coals on his head. Our actions don't judge other people. God is judge. What it does is our kindness to people who have done harm to us, that leaves them to the judgment of God. We are not actively trying to harm them. We are leaving them to the judgment of God because we have shown real goodness, real kindness, real love to those who have sought to harm us. What do we say at the end of this? That kindness and virtue are the product of love, plain and simple. I've said this already, bears repeating now. Most of the kindness, I'm going to put kindness and virtue in quotes here. Most of the kindness and virtue that we see in our culture is motivated by a lot of selfishness, tribalism, or some other ideological motivation. In other words, I want to be kind to them so that in the future, I can get some kindness back. The kindness and virtue that we're called to possess are fruits of the objective love of Christ. Beloved, that means pointing out what is not virtuous when it's not virtuous and not for any other reason. Pointing out what is virtue when it is genuinely virtue and not for any other reason. This type of love, it compels us to treat both our friends and our enemies with dignity and honor. And if that's all we take away from this, then we, we, we've grabbed a large part of what Paul is driving at here. How we treat people, how we love, how we entertain vengeance says a lot about the virtue at work in our own lives and hearts. This type of love, it compels us to serve when we are certain it can't be paid back. This type of love compels us to love when it would be easier to hate. This type of love is the love of Christ, and it is our response to all of life. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word and its power, the richness and the depth. Thank you for it's the beauty of it, but it is not easy. It's easy to read through these verses, but when we start seeing the depth of what lies herein, 
it reminds us that even I have only scratched the surface this morning to the rich beauty of these truths. God, you are able to transform us and to heal and to renew, and I pray that you would do that. Continue to transform us, we pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.